Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. This is the last sermon uh, in this series in the book of Malachi. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But today is also the the first day of Advent. Uh, Advent is this season of of waiting in anticipation for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a a time that we set apart at the end of each year to think about Jesus Christ and and His birth. Uh, If if you can remember back with me when when you were a kid, can, can you do that? It, it's not that long ago for all of us, is it? it? It's only been a little while. And maybe looking through the eyes of our own children would, would be helpful in this particular analogy. But, but when we were kids, there were only a, a handful of dates on the calendar that we looked forward to each year. Th- these dates where there was a lot of excitement and anticipation. Kids, help me out here. What are some dates that you look forward to? Summer break from school, is that one of them? You like summer vacation? Good. What about your birthday? Is that a, yeah, that's a special day for you? Okay. Dare I say Halloween? Any Halloween? No. I shouldn't say Halloween. No. Blech. All right. Never mind. Thanksgiving? Is that a date you look forward to? Big turkey day? Good. But definitely, definitely Christmas. And when you ask a kid what they're looking forward to most about Christmas or what makes Christmas so special, we as Christian parents hope that our kids would say Jesus, right? But when when you're talking to a kid, most of the time, what are they going to say is so special about Christmas? Presents. In our home, it's not unusual for us to set up Christmas decorations the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, And this year, we actually set them up before Thanksgiving, which I know in some homes is like sacrilegious, that the Christmas decorations shouldn't come out until Thanksgiving lunch is all cleaned up, right? And as the decorations go up, the anticipation and expectation of the arrival of Christmas season and the gifts that it brings begins to build. But today marks the day of the beginning of a season for us as Christians in which we anxiously anticipated another kind of gift. And this gift wasn't new clothes or video games or gift cards, but this gift was the Son of God Himself. Advent is a season of preparation, and we look forward to celebrating the gift of Jesus Christ arriving here on earth. We have the privilege of already knowing all the details about His first arrival here on earth, but the Scriptures have promised that He will come again a second time. You see, the return of Christ, the the second return of Christ, will be the single greatest event in human history that is yet to happen. And when He returns, according to our passage today, the wicked will be brought to ruin and the righteous will be exalted. But we must, brothers and sisters, we must be ready for that day. 
So I want to invite you at this time, if you're able, to stand with me for a reading from the Word of God. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Before you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is a reading from the Lord, Word of God. You may be seated. What we see very first in this particular passage in verse 1 is that the wicked will be brought to complete ruin by the judgment of God. The Lord continues to discuss the future judgment that awaits those who reject Him and His Word. The Old Testament is filled with something that this passage is discussing. Here in this passage, it's just simply called the day. But oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's referring to the day of the Lord. This is the day when the Lord returns to pass judgment on those who don't follow him. Remember, just in the previous verses, the people of Israel tell Malachi that the wicked test God and they escape. There doesn't seem to be any punishment for them. Well, this passage continues to confirm that that is actually a lie. Listen to how Amos describes this particular day of the Lord in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. It says this, Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. What this is telling us is that for many people who desire the day of the Lord, they're going to get something way different than what they bargained for. This picture that Amos is painting is a terrifying picture, one of where they think they have escaped, but have actually fell into a worse trap, that this man who flees the lion thinks he's escaped danger, and as he turns the corner, he's met by a bear or a person who thinks they've entered the safety of their house only to find that there's a snake in waiting for them. The point of this particular analogy, the point of what this text is telling us, is that there are many, there are many who think they're ready for the day of the Lord, but when the day of the Lord comes, they're not ready for it. What they think they're going to get is actually the complete opposite of what they are going to receive. Here in this particular passage, the judgment is described in two ways. Both examples include an all-consuming fire. The example and picture 
of its all-consuming nature permeates this particular passage. We're going to see it all the way through. The first example of judgment comes from an oven, in particular, a, a wood-fired oven. And of course, you guys know me well enough to know that if I have opportunity to make a food analogy, I'm going to, right? Have, have any of you ever had wood-fired pizza? Have you seen these ovens? I mean, that stuff is delicious, isn't it? It's like a light crust, but it's baked to protect perfection. Those ovens with the wood fire inside of them are so hot, the pizza only has to be in there for like two to three minutes. It's like five or six minutes to bake it thoroughly. That's how hot it is. This passage describes something that would easily burn up by being tossed into this extreme fire. This text calls this something stubble. Maybe a word that would seem more familiar to you that you know from the Old and the New Testament is chaff. And this is actually a, a harvesting analogy. After what is harvested and the small and valuable grain of wheat is, is saved, what's left over is this whole worthless plant that, that's not really good for anything. The leftover chaff, this leftover part of the plant, has no chance to resist the fire. Once it's tossed into the fire, it's completely consumed. The, the second example of judgment is a tree. The picture here that's being painted is of a tall and wide tree that, that seems to be growing with an extensive branch and root system. But when the arborist comes, the tree cannot resist his saw. Piece by piece, he takes the tree down, and when they take it down, what is left? There's something that's left from a tree, the stump. The arborist comes back with a machine called a stump grinder, and he grinds the tree all the way down so that the tree can't grow back. In the same way, the judgment of God will destroy the wicked from the very top to the very bottom. The picture of judgment that's being painted here is one that cannot be resisted and is completely consuming. Now, just in case we fall into the trap of thinking that this is something that's only exemplified in the Old Testament, let me remind you that there's a connection in the New. John the Baptist actually quotes Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Here's what he says. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than thy, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the fleshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This tells us that the judgment of the Lord, the, the day of the Lord, is yet to come. But when it does, no one will be able to stand against it. But this is where the passage starts to turn, and it turns to hope. In verses 2 and 3, what we find is Christ's return will bring healing, freedom, and victory. 
And in, in the beginning of verse 2, we're introduced to someone who is referred to as the son of righteousness. And this word actually seems to be making a, a picture of a comparison of the actual son to the Messiah. It's meant to picture the dawning of a new day and its benefits. Namely, this text says righteousness and the vindication of those who fear the name of the Lord. But it's also meant to give us a beautiful and bright picture of the, the nature and production of the Messiah. It's meant to picture the idea of a new creation that will bring about restoration, meaning that everything that the Son touches will receive healing. But just like the rising of the sun is obvious to everyone, this time the restoration by God of His people will be as obvious and undeniable as the sun rising in the sky. The healing or restoration that the Son of Righteousness shall bring is actually the undoing of sin and its effects. Those who fear the name of the Lord, along with the whole of creation, will be freed from the curse of sin and its consequences. There's a beautiful picture that this passage continues to paint as it describes the rays of the sun in comparison to the widespread wings of a bird. With the weather changing and, and winter almost upon us, we, we can almost feel the analogy that's being painted here. Uh, if you've ever had to get up and, and leave your house early on a cold morning, the morning often before the sun rises feels very cold and, and dark and, and almost empty. The cold, in some sense, before the sun rises almost seems to be more bitter. But as the sun rises, with its warming rays, it, it drives back the dark, bitter cold. It drives it away. I imagine, too, a baby bird in its nest, fearful of the world around it. But, it. but it feels an incredible comfort as the widespread wings of its mother cover it in protection as it returns. When Messiah returns, there will be a response that is invoked in his followers. This response to the rays of the sun and the protection of the wings the picture that's painted here for us is of a young calf who's been pent up in the barn that finally gets to experience the freedom of, and delight of being free from the bondage of his stall to the freedom of an open field. And maybe this analogy doesn't resonate with you very much. How many of you have ever seen a calf released from the barn? It's like, two of us, you and me, Sarah, this was written for us. But what I'm sure you have seen is a new dog, a young puppy, released from the back door into the backyard. When, when the dog finally gets outside, what does it do? It's like it has to explore every corner of the yard. It runs over. Sometimes if it's a bigger dog and you're outside, that dog will knock you down in an effort to try to explore the freedom it's just been granted. And as you watch this dog explore the yard, there's almost like this sense of joy that the dog has in his experiencing of freedom. For us, brothers and sisters, when Christ returns, 
there will be a freedom that we experience once we're completely free from the curse and oppression of sin that will cause us to overflow in joy in such a way that might not even be easy for us to imagine now. I mean, imagine with me for a moment never having to worry about sinning again. Does anybody else's knees hurt when it gets cold? I've reached that stage where my knees have started to make noise when the temperature changes. And it doesn't feel good. When Christ returns, that's going to be gone. He's going to bring healing to our physical bodies, but complete healing to our spiritual bodies. That, that you and I will never struggle with sin or its effects again. I have a hard time imagining this myself, but even conveying it to you. That there is a freedom that we'll get to experience in the return of Jesus Christ that is unlike anything we've even experienced to this point. Not only will he bring this healing, this passage continues in verse 3 with an incredible picture of victory. The enemies of God have been fully defeated, and the end result of the judging fire of God has produced its results. The wicked and the arrogant are now ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous. Can you imagine this? Doesn't it appear right now that evil is winning? Doesn't it appear that all those who are arrogant and against God are getting their way? But there is a day that is coming, brothers and sisters, where you and I will be completely freed from sin, and those who oppose God will be like ashes left over from a fire will not get to just experience spiritual freedom and physical freedom. We'll get to experience complete victory in which sin will have no more control in the world at all. All the sin and oppression, all the resistance to God, all of the evil that's happening will be brought to complete ruin, never to rise again. But have you... Have you ever wondered, how can we have assurance that this day is ever going to come? How do we know that when the Lord says He's going to act, that He actually will? The Old Testament doesn't really speak of a, of a first and a second coming. The Old Testament seems to focus more on the return of a Messiah who will sit upon the throne of David, meaning he will be a, a ruling king. The way that we know that he is going to act is because he already has. When we fast forward to the beginning of the New Testament, we see Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, prophesying about John and about Jesus the Messiah. In Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79, he quotes almost directly from Malachi 4, 2 and 3. Speaking of John, he says this, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, for Jesus to bring true healing, freedom, and victory, he had to first come and die for our sins. He had to die for our sins to bring us healing, freedom, and victory over sin and death. But his resurrection not only guarantees victory over sin and death, it is the seal of a promise that Christ will one day return to bring about physical healing as well. Our sin-cursed bodies and the sin-cursed universe will one day be made whole on the day when the Lord acts. But the truth is, some will not be prepared for Christ's return. But as his children, we must be prepared by obeying his word. Malachi calls upon those who fear the Lord to act on what they remember. What they are to remember are the statutes and rules given to Moses. And this is a call back to the Ten Commandments given to Moses after the people of Israel were set free from captivity in Egypt. But Malachi tells us that there is another that will come before the Messiah. This text calls him Elijah. And this is not the first time that the Old Testament has mentioned the return of Elijah. But the question that must be asked, and the question that that plagued me is, why is Elijah so often mentioned in conjunction with the Messiah? Let me suggest to you that the answer actually lies in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. The question is, why is Elijah consistently tied with Messiah. Why? What does 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 tells us? Remember, this is the story of Elijah and Elisha walking together. The mantle is about to be passed from Elijah to Elisha. And what happens in this text to Elijah? It says, and as they still went on, that's Elijah and Elisha, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Let me suggest to you this is why they're tied together. Elijah's ascension into heaven without dying built the expectation that his return marked the beginning of the messianic age. That the prophet who didn't die but would return to declare the coming of the Messiah, introduce the king that would never die. But Jesus, in his grace and mercy, identifies someone as Elijah who comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Matthew chapter 11, sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, 17, chapter 17, 11 through 13, Mark 9, 12 and 13, and Luke 9, 28 through 36 all tell us that Jesus says that those who are listening to him, they tell those who, he tells those who are listening to Jesus that John the Baptist is at least initially fulfilling the role of Elijah. 
that John the Baptist is the one who comes to declare, to make straight the ways of the Lord. Now, let me suggest to you, this is why I say at least in part, or initially fulfilling the role of Elijah. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, report of two witnesses who appear to testify to the world of the coming judgment of Messiah. These two witnesses are believed to be the two men who didn't die in the Old Testament. One of them we've already stated, that's Elijah. Do you know who the other one is? Enoch. That when these two witnesses appear on the scene, that judgment day, that day of the Lord, the final judgment, the end of the age is upon us. But we know for sure that John the Baptist is at least a type of Messiah. But, but what we need to think about, what we need to see in this particular passage is the incredible grace and mercy of the Lord, that he sent a prophet to declare his coming and has delayed his judgment now for over 2,000 years. And during this time, there has been one clear message that has been declared. We must turn away from our sin and repent. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has allowed for the conversion of our whole hearts. If we repent and turn to the Lord, this is what he has promised to do. This is what all of this turning of the hearts means. Ezekiel chapter 30, 36, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26 says it this way. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your unrighteousness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your, heart, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, when we turn to Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and turned from your sin, Ezekiel tells us that our hearts are like rock, like stone, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Just as a rock is not living, our, our hearts are not spiritually living. They might physically be beating and pumping blood, but they are not spiritually living. And until Jesus Christ comes into our heart and changes our heart, we are dead and doomed in our trespasses and sins. But when Christ comes into our heart, he exchanges our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. He changes us at the very core of who we are. This is the promise that God has been offering us now through Jesus Christ for all these years. But this passage ends with a final word of caution. Here's the caution. There are those who will be doing their own thing, believing that they are doing the right thing, but they are not following the commands of the Lord. And because they're not following the commands of the Lord, He will return to bring about the destruction of those who oppose Him. Because they are not keeping his commandments, they will be completely unprepared when he returns. And let me just say to you, friend, if you have not repented from your sins and you are not being obedient to the Word of God, you must hear this warning. Jesus Christ can return to exact judgment at any moment. We don't know exactly when the beginning of his judgment will happen. 
But what we do know is that it could happen at any moment. And so my, my plea to you is that if he returns and finds you unprepared, you will be helpless and hopeless. So do not let this moment pass without considering this question. If Christ were to return today, am I ready to face him? Brothers and sisters, this is how the Old Testament ends. And then there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence from God. And the people of Israel must have begun to wonder if God has forsaken them. Have they been so wicked that God has turned away from them completely? Or maybe even worse is that it doesn't appear that many of them even care. This is one of the overarching themes of Malachi. Because all too often the words of God fall on deaf ears. But friends, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, open your ears and your hearts to hear these words. Christ will return. And when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. But brothers and sisters, Christians, the same motivation that would encourage someone to repent and turn from their sins is the same motivation that we have to live holy lives now. Listen to 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, this return of Christ, this fulfillment of his messianic plan, this return for his children should make our hearts sing. And out of this rejoicing and and anticipation of his return, there should be a pursuit of obedience and holiness that happens as a result. You see, I already mentioned that today begins a season of Advent, and this is a season where we look back upon the appearing of Jesus at his birth. And as we look back with thankful eyes on the Advent season before Christ's birth, we recognize that we are in a new season of Advent as we longingly look forward to his second coming. But friends, do you long for his second coming? Are you ready for Jesus Christ to return today? For the Christian, the response to that should be one of yes and amen. Because we long to see our Savior face to face. We long to see sin brought to an end. We long to see all things made right in the glorious return of our Savior.
Well, let's try to make an even more direct connection to our life. If you remember through this series, I've been trying to walk us through 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17 to discuss what is happening in this particular passage and how does it apply to me? How is it profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness? I think the two major doctrines that we see in this particular passage One of them has been repeated already, but it is the judgment and destruction of the wicked. But the second is the the advent of Christ. And if we think about these two major doctrines, and we think about our own thinking and where it might need to be corrected, maybe this is a good question to ask. Does the coming judgment of the wicked motivate me to evangelism. You see, brothers and sisters, if we really believe that Christ could return at any moment, there should be a very real sense of urgency that we would have to share the gospel with those who are perishing. That if I really believe that Christ is going to return and judge the wicked for opposing him, then there should be a sense of urgency that I have to deliver the gospel to them as lovingly and compassionately as I can, but also as soon as I possibly can. The second question is very similar to the first, but it's this. Does the return of Christ motivate my obedience? Meaning, does the consistent pattern of my life seem to indicate that if Christ were to return at any moment, I would be found doing His will for His glory. Does the consistent way in which I live lend itself to a high probability that if Christ were to return, I would be doing His will? And let me be clear. Doing His will for His glory doesn't just mean reading your Bible and praying all day. Although, I would love to be able to do that. If if we didn't have to work, we could just live in a compound, someone made our food all day long, and we just sat around and and read the Bible and prayed all day. That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Anybody else be down for that gig? Just me? Okay, no, lots of us. But it extends beyond just Bible study and prayer. It means that everything you do is done for the glory of God. Every word that you speak, every interaction you have in the workplace, even the way that that you wrap your Christmas presents or choose not to have Christmas presents, whatever you decide to do, those things must be done for the glory of God in part because we're anticipating that as we're doing them, He could return. And we want to be able to answer the question positively of what we'll be found doing when Christ returns. But now we need to take this not just from the thinking level, but to the behavior level. Let let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, when was the last time that you shared the gospel? When was the last time that you set out with some intent to share the gospel with, with someone that you know that does not do Je- know Jesus Christ. And, and let me just say, if you can't remember the last time that you shared the gospel, can I just admonish you to do something? 
to, to take the tracks that are constantly available at the back and, and put them in the hand of, of your postman or, or someone. You see, because the, the return of Christ is, is marvelous for those who believe, but for those who don't, it will be horrific. And we have been, not, not just me as your pastor, but you as believers in Jesus Christ have been commissioned by the Lord to share the gospel with everyone that you come in contact with, some to greater or lesser degrees, but you are the gospel messenger of your neighborhood. You live where you live. You work where you work. You go to the gym that you go to. You frequent the same restaurants because God has commissioned you to deliver his gospel there. Let's, let's at least attempt to do something. The second question, again, is very similar to the first. What have I done today to obey the word of God? You see, again, we must let the certain return of Christ motivate us to constantly be using the Word of God as a filter by which we see the world, ourselves, and how we live in it. We must see the return of Christ as so glorious that we're willing to strive for obedience no matter the cost. And you understand we're, we're consistently living in a world where if we are obedient to the Word of God, it might cost us relationships, it might cost us jobs, and any number of, every, of other things, but Christ is worthy of the loss of all things to glorify Him. And His return must matter so much to us that all else, compels, that all else pales in comparison. But what is the instruction and righteousness from this passage? Here's, here's the challenge for the next week. I want you to write down the name of one person that you know that needs to hear the gospel and chart a plan to share the gospel with them. And I, I want you to write that name down. And when we pray in a moment, I, I want you to begin to pray for them by name. I want you to ask the Lord to give you wisdom on how to approach them with the gospel. And, and we must ask the Lord to save them. We're, we're not the one who saves them. We're just the messenger. The Lord saves them. And, and use this Advent season where there are Christmas decorations everywhere. People are preparing for Christmas. Use this season as an opportunity to talk about the reason the season exists, which is Christ. But, but here's the other part of this, right? Because we understand if we tell people about Jesus Christ and then we don't live as Christians, that's incredibly confusing for them. That anybody that would see our life as someone who says that they're a Christian, but then they live like the world, something is going to seem off and inconsistent in that message. And so as we introduce people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must at the same time strive to be obedient to the Word of God. And here's, here, are, here is how I think is the easiest way to consider this. To just think about the next thing that you need to do today. What is the next thing that you're going to do today? And for many of us, our stomach might be telling us the next thing that we need to do today is to have some lunch. And when I think about having lunch, I need to ask the question, how would I glorify God in doing this task? 
How would I go about being obedient to his word as I do the next thing that I have to do? How would you honor the Lord in your conversations with each other? How would you go about glorifying God in this task? And once that task is completed and you move to the next task for the day, ask the same question. How can the Lord be honored in this task? How can I go about seeking to be obedient to His Word so that His second coming is foremost in my mind and my gospel witness is not harmed by the way that I live? And when I hold those two things in tandem, what seems to happen is a striving for obedience comes up and increases, and I become more bold for the gospel. As I live consistent with the Word of God, I also become a consistent declarer, preacher of the gospel of God. So I want to challenge you. You might have many things that you would like to do over this next Christmas season, events you'd like to attend, gifts that you would like to give. But let me challenge you that the greatest thing that that you can do, the two greatest things that you can do in this Christmas season is share Christ and live for Him. Let your testimony be consistent with the gospel that you declare as we together await the second advent of Jesus Christ. Will you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Lord, we're thankful for this time we've been able to spend in the book of Malachi. We're thankful for the many lessons that we've learned. But mainly, we're we're thankful for what we've learned about you. We've learned that you are a merciful, patient God, that even when you rebel against or when we rebel against you, you still love us, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. We've learned that you are going to return again, and when you do, you will judge the world according to your holy standard. And although none of us could pass that holy standard on our own, you've made it possible for us to be able to spend eternity in heaven with you. Lord, as we continue to prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas Sunday, help us prepare by looking forward to not just your first, but also your second coming. That the way in which we live would give testimony to the gospel that we believe, so that if you will return at any moment, we would be ready for your return. And Lord, we are asking that you would return quickly. We, we would love to see your return in our lifetime. But if that is not your plan, if you are to return many years from now, allow us to be faithful. Allow us to be faithful until we pass away or your return. But Lord, I also ask that if there are any here today, if there are any listening online that do not know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that you would call them unto yourself. 
that they would see that you are a coming judge who will come to punish sin. And the only way to escape your wrath and your punishment is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that you would take away their heart of stone and you would give them a new heart of flesh. That they would be changed into your child. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to think about the ways in which we can be obedient to your word that we would be so changed by the gospel that everything that we do, every word out of our mouth, every intention of our heart would seek to glorify you above all else. Lord, we're ready for you to return. But until that day happens, allow us to be faithful. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.